So in brief, the, the thing that I was thinking about was I, I, I brought to class a, uh, a piece out of the New York Times from the week before about uh, uh, a woman and her decisions in life. And in brief, the woman who found herself pregnant with triplets uh, partnered and eager to raise a child, but not eager to raise three, and uh, how she decided to, uh, because you can do that now, have uh, the twin embryo aborted and went on to carry the pregnancy successfully and has one child. And I read it, and then people talked about it in small groups. And what was uh, particularly evident to everyone is everyone had a view you know, that uh, everybody had an expectation and everybody had a view. There was a lot of passion about that. It's interesting to think because that particular issue, it's not the only issue that we have a lot of passion about, but that particular issue remains a rallying point on the political scene because it brings up tremendous passions in people both ways. So how many people here are watching all of this uh, convention stuff on the... TV. Not a lot. Uh, I haven't been home a lot, and I don't watch TV classically. I read the paper about it. And uh, I am aware that just from reading the paper or from what my friends tell me, that, uh, I mean, it's, it's not a surprise to anybody. I have partisan feelings. <laughs> and I feel very much like when my team scores well, I feel good. They say, Gee, did you hear what that 11-year-old girl said? Wow, <laughs> I just heard that this morning. <laughs> you didn't see her yesterday? I, I didn't see her. Did anybody say, did, yeah. do you not know about the 11-year-old girl? Do you want to hear about the 11-year-old girl? So Robin will stand up and tell you about the 11-year-old girl. She obviously had a lot of feeling about it. Well, she's um, a 12-year-old girl from Oakland who started the organization Kids for Carrie. <laughs> and she got up and made a speech about how her parents were inspired by Carrie and that inspired her and how important it was for education and the things that mattered to children and that children's votes mattered. And then um, I think the thing that kind of brought the house down was when she said, um, she was talking about dignity or something, and she said, our vice president had a you know, said a very bad word when he had an argument with our senator, <laughs> with a Democratic senator. And if I said such a word, I'd get a timeout. And I. <laughs> <laughs> and she was just uh, this powerhouse of courage and energy at 12. <laughs> and her friends all said she was very shy. But she was up there with this presence. She was beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah. Her name is Ilana Wexler, and this morning on the news it said that she aspires to be president. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, another, uh, she's 12? 12. So, another 35 years, 40 years. Uh, Susan. I don't know if I'm quoting this correctly, but she also said to kids to get out there and tell the adults to yeah. vote, you know, inspire yeah. them to vote. So I uh -huh. think that that's all. So, you know, I mean, I know a lot, I mean, our parents have stopped smoking because their kids told them to stop smoking. So yeah. maybe more kids will go out and vote. That's great. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I, one of the comments I want to make just in general 
is I can tell just from this response and the weeks before uh, that many people are partisan in their political <laughs> views and mostly partisan in the same way that I am. Except I want to tell you, if you're not, that's okay. You know, that it's perfectly fine to be here with another political point of view. One of the, one of the things that I have been really talking about and uh, reading about and making a point about is, uh, as a spiritual practice, how to be able to hold the other person's point of view and think about it, which is really hard. I see Tony is here today, and Tony is my guru on that. Tony's sitting in the back. Tony teaches Dharma up in uh, uh, Davis. Davis. I mentioned Tony last week. I tell you, Tony is a person who listens to controversial talk radio, and I honor him tremendously because I can't do that without becoming <laughs> overwrought and irritable and angry. And he does it as an equanimity practice and as a way of watching what arises in his mind in response to that. This is really important. I, I, I want to teach you a little thing that I actually learned in a conversation from, with Donald two days ago. Donald was here on Sunday teaching a day on working with judgments. Anybody was here for Donald's day? Heard it was a great day. He's talking about judgments. How many people think of themselves as having judgments? Okay. <laughs> I have a lot of judgments. He was making the very important difference between uh, a discernment and a judgment. You know that that people say, you know, this is this is not, you know, that we have a, a feeling that judgment is a bad thing. Like I'm a very judgmental person. But on the other hand, people will say back, well, you know, you can't walk through life saying anything goes. You know that we do have uh, views that. Uh, we do make uh, discernments about what is skillful and what is not skillful. Those are, those are very good words, actually. You, write, you read those words, skillful, unskillful, and wholesome, unwholesome, in traditional Buddha Dharma, much more than good and bad. Unless you read the Anapanika Tara, who says things like the roots of evil. But anyway, uh, <laughs> skillful and unskillful, and wholesome and unwholesome, are good terms because you say, does this mitigate in the direction of lessening suffering in the heart and in the world, or does it not mitigate in the direction of lessening suffering? This is what I'm thinking or doing or about to say. So he was saying about judgments that there are certain things that you say, this is a discernment. I have discerned as a result of what I've learned and thought and realized and experienced myself that this is a wholesome thing to do. And the difference that he was making between a discernment and a judgment was that a discernment was um, knowing what's happening and not being reactive about it, just knowing what's happening and having equanimity around it. That's very much Tony's practice. And that a judgment was seeing what's happening, acknowledging what's happening, and being <laughs> reactive about it. So uh, when I read you the story last week about <laughs> the woman who made those decisions about the pregnancies that she had, you know, I watched in myself uh, the hope that I had that she would do it one way, not another way. How do I know what's right for that woman? You know, I don't know. But, you know, based on my own experience, what, 
because all of the judgments are based on our own experience and where we are reactive. So it's very important, and I wanted to talk a little bit today on that difference between reactive and judgmental. Judge, reactive and not reactive. The ability to listen to what somebody says, not be reactive and say, that's really interesting that they think that. I wonder how come they think that. I have the most interesting time. I don't know if it's interesting. I don't know if this is completely... Well, I'm going to tell you this story now, and then I'll decide if it's completely clean of, of uh, some hidden intent. I have a cousin who uh, lives in the Bay Area, my age, um, like a couple actually, the, the two people, who uh, my husband and I meet from time to time. They're not very close. They don't live exactly here, but they live in the Bay Area, and we meet them from time to time. And they're very good people. They've had a family. They're even more or less contemporaries of ours, very cordial they have completely the opposite politics from me. Completely the opposite. And we've known them for, you know, ever. I, you know, I've known this particular man since I was 13 years old. He's actually my husband's cousin. 13 years old when I met him, so I've known him for, you know, coming on 50 years. And uh, we have a cordial relationship all the time, and we have an unspoken agreement not to talk politics. Uh, because we hear around the edges what they th Anyway, recently I said to her in some conversation, I said, you know, I'm so fond of you, and I think you're really fond of us, and I think it would be wonderful if we got together, and uh, just the four of us, and we took an hour. I'm really interested in how come you got to have your point of view, because I feel so convinced of my point of view. I said, I think it'd be great if you told us for a half hour how come you have your point of view? Because in some very brief conversation, she said, we have always voted in da 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 such and such a way. I said, I would like for you to tell us how you came to decide that. They're smart people. It's like reading the, op reading the opposite editorial in the newspaper. I said, I would like you to tell us how come you decided that, and we'll just listen, and we won't rebut anything that you say. We'll just listen. And then we would like to tell you how come we are holding this particular political view, and you could just listen. I said, I think, you know, we love each other so much, really, you know, it, and I'm really interested in how a person who I like so much as a person <laughs> has it does. I seriously am. So I did that, and she thought about it, and she said, no, I think we're doing just fine the way we are. <laughs> so, uh, uh, why do you think she said that? You're afraid it'll cause a rift. Yeah. 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 Why would it cause a rift if I just listened? Or if she just listened? I, 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 maybe Robin's right. Maybe it would cause a rift. How would it cause a rift? Pasquale, what do you think? What do you think, Tony? Tony's behind you. He has something to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, actually, it's interesting that I have to think to myself, is my motivation sincere interest <laughs> in how did she get this view, or is my motivation to undermine her view? You know, what is my motivation? What are you thinking? I'm thinking that she knows she's going to be judgmental, and mm. she loves you, she doesn't want yeah. to end up in that place where you might be able to not be judgmental. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. What do you think? I, I, I'm not so sure about the rift mm-hmm. of it, um, but my fantasy is that her position is is essentially fear-based. Mm-hmm. A, you may have heard this expression, 90%, I think it was Alan Watts, 90% uh, of speech is in defense of a crumbling fortress. <laughs> Did you hear that? Ninety percent of speech is in defense of a crumbling fortress. That's attributed to Alan Watts. That's a really interesting thing to say. Wait, somebody else wanted to say something. Uh, I think she was afraid of the process you set up. Mm. Namely, she was going to have to open her mind because she could listen for thirty minutes and not rebut. Mm-hmm. That's a very threatening thing to your firmly entrenched defenses mm-hmm. to listen and not rebut. So this, so this in defense of a crumbling fortress, you don't want anybody, you don't give 30 minutes. Jerry? I think that it's a microcosm of what goes on on the planet. Mm-hmm. That people are really afraid to hear other people's points of view and mm-hmm. ideas, and that that's really what so much what gets us into so much conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was hearing on NPR not too long ago there were several linguistics, professors of linguistics talking, and they were talking about how much in this culture there uh, there's um, kind of a, a, an enforcement of, of the idea of, of debate, like mm-hmm. of debating this society, etc. But we don't, there's not a lot of support for dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it was a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really into it. A couple of more. Go ahead, Abigail. I was wondering how long ago your conversation with her occurred. How long mm. ago did you have this conversation with her? Six months. Because I was going to say, I wonder what would happen um, once she had time to really think about it, if you brought it up again. Mm. That startle reaction when someone says something right away. Mm-hmm. Really, what I want to come around to in this whole discussion, so that it's an appropriate discussion for a Buddhist retreat center on a Wednesday morning, (laughs) is how do you really keep peace in your heart? What are the essentials of keeping peace in your heart? And what would peace in the heart look like, really? 
And I started from the presidential thing and the easy thing, like the, the election um, and, the, and the, the rhetoric, because, yay, oh, look what they said, oh, but look what we said, oh. you know, score one for us, unscore one for them, that kind of debate that goes on in the mind. Uh, that I see happen in me, and the right away making of an us and them in that, that, the good guys and the bad guys, and how much us and them happens immediately pursuant to the forming of a, of a view. This is a good thing to think, and this is not a good thing to think. So there's now good guys and bad guys. And how to keep the world free of good guys and bad guys, because if it were, I would have peace in the heart. You know, suppose I lived in a world that was only populated with people whose hearts I trusted to be like mine, wishing for the good, who sometimes had different views. Then I could really be motivated to edify them or to teach them or to feed them or to invite them to dinner, but not to hurt them in a world full of people hurting each other, is what I am thinking about. I'm going to ask you a meta-riddle. I have lots of wonderful things I want to read to you, but the meta-riddle comes to mind. Do you know the meta-riddle? Do you know what? What? (laughs) Maureen says, huh? (laughs) You do. You'll remember it. So the meta-riddle is this. we, uh, at the end of the time that we sat together and we wished well to ourselves and the, our well-loved people and just the people around you who you might or might not know and uh, the whole world full of people and even a couple of people, if you tried, who uh, have conflictual relationships with you. wonder how many of you thought of a political figure during that bring to mind a difficult person. It comes up a lot these days. People say to me, I couldn't, po- oh, you did. Think of it. They say, I couldn't possibly be wishing goodwill to, and then they name one or another politically prominent person. And uh, so here's the meta riddle. Riddle is this you're walking, this is given to presumably people who have practiced the practice of cultivating only kindness in the heart out of the awareness, dual awareness, that everyone could not be different from how they are. They're exactly the way they are because of circumstances. No one is responsible personally for what they're doing. They, every one of us, including me, is the result of all of our karma. I think the way I do, I behave the way I do, because I couldn't behave otherwise. It's a piece that I want to talk about right away, about the couldn't behave otherwise. And the other half of it is that if I am able to hold that view of the world, which is essentially a really benevolent view, it's a tolerant view, it doesn't mean everyone gets to have free reign to do whatever they want to do. It means you make judgments. You love your children completely, but you say, this you can't do, and that I'm stopping you from doing. It doesn't mean not acting in the world. It just means acting out of kindness, instructing and not punishing. That's all it means. And I'd have to know that really that's the only place that guarantees me happiness, that I cannot feel safe and protected unless I have peopled the world with people like me who want peace. And then they're not my enemies. And then I'm living in a world full of brethren, kin. That's the safest place for me to be. Otherwise, I have to be always figuring out who my enemies are. 
So you do metta practice, and you do it really as a as a not full time the recitation of mantra, which is what people sometimes think about, but full time the examination of the heart. What's the climate of the heart? I actually think that mostly when people say, "What's your practice like these days?" You sit, you walk, you do mindfulness, do you do metta resolves? What do you do? Mostly, I watch when I am in and out of being in love with life and the creatures in it. When my heart is belligerent or when my heart is benevolent. I never realized that those two words go really well together. They look <laughs> two, that's a good word. Belligerent or benevolent. And I have two ways that I can go. It's like an off-on. I can go this way or that way. Um, I'm sure I've told you that my grandfather had as a figure of speech that he would decline every... Um, now, every name that he was about to say of a living person with the phrase, they should live and be well. My daughter Miriam, she should live and be well, uh, is, not as, uh, 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 is not as easygoing as my daughter Gladys, may she rest in peace, was. You know, that everybody's name gets declined in a certain way. And I thought it was just a sweet way of talking for a long time. And I think it actually may have some... Eastern European folk uh, magic about it, that if you say that about somebody, that uh, that protects them from any kind of a spirit hearing something that you're about to say about them that wasn't so good, maybe. But <laughs> my daughter Miriam, may she live and be well, was not as easygoing, you know, that, anyway. But I thought to myself, what about if we actually had that as a habit of mind, you know? The President of the United States, may he live and be well, is doing the best that he can. And so are the people who are working with him, may they live and be well. That my, my interest in choosing a political, um, a political team that might be different from this one can be completely different from my wish that they should live and be well. They should live and be well, and I can choose something else. But how to keep that live and be well going. So here's the meta riddle. That's a very big preamble to the meta riddle. <laughs> you are walking along. Uh, you've been practicing this purification of the heart. You have complete goodwill for all beings. You're walking along and uh, you're walking with uh, your, your teacher. So in the days of the Buddha, when he set up this riddle, everybody, you know, revered the Buddha. So you're walking with your teacher and your uh, best beloved friend and uh, someone whom you don't particularly know. We, in, in uh, metta practice, we've been in the habit of calling that person a neutral person. But someone had a much better term for it this week when I was talking to her. She said, oh, that's a familiar stranger. You know? I thought to myself, that's a much better term, isn't it? I mean, my, my dental hygienist is a familiar stranger. I don't know about her whole life, but I know my, my dentist is a familiar stranger. Uh, there are a lot of people who are familiar strangers. There are people at Spirit Rock who are familiar strangers. I say, oh, I know you from Spirit Rock, but I don't really know about them. They're not really my friend. Familiar stranger. That would actually put them in the category of people who don't frighten me, familiar strangers. You know, it's, oh, I know you. You're all right. Then there are the difficult people uh, that I know you and you're not all right. You know, actually, that makes much more sense than neutral because there are very few neutral people in the world. Immediately, you look at somebody and you have a view on them. But familiar stranger and a difficult person. 
and then all beings. So you're walking along with uh, your teacher, your best beloved, a familiar stranger, the person who's been uh, your enemy in life. So it's four people and you, five people walking along, and out pops some desperado who, for reasons in the riddle not given, says, you cannot continue on the way. I'm here. I need one of you as a sacrifice. And if one of you has their life sacrificed, the four others of you can continue on to your destination. So it's never discussed about why, but anyway. And you are the person who makes the choice. That's the metta riddle. If you were in Burma and you were practicing with Upandita, as my friend Sharon was when she got asked that riddle, You'd have to come up with an answer. So think a minute. Think, think, think. You are the chooser. Okay. Look at one or two people next to you and discuss with your person what you decided and what they decided. Ready, set, go. You have to turn around. Not that one. 
You figure it out. So once again, <laughs> actually the wonderful, one of the wonderful things about having those kinds of uh, turn to somebody in an impromptu way is it's quite clear that nobody doesn't have a view. You know, that, that everybody has a view. So what did you figure? What do you know? Yeah. Lisa, good, good. Thank you. What else? I don't, yeah. What else? Well, oh, hi. Um, I, I thought we would just say no. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the Nancy Reagan. <laughs> Actually, what's in front of me is it says here how wonderful. It is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. That's actually Anne Frank. Thank you, Barbara. But that's a thought. Just say no. What else? We had the same opinion. I said, I won't decide. I refuse to decide. Okay. 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 All right. What else? Somebody else had another view. Robin. I don't think this is the official answer to the riddle, but my, my initial response was myself. Initial response is yourself. How, how many other people had that view? Quite a lot of people had that view. So what did you think, Joe? Well, we, we, did, we had everything. We had uh, ourselves, uh, drawing straws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, drawing straws, but, but why drawing straws? Because we wouldn't have to do it. Okay. What else? Well, from the people who thought of me. Pasquale, what do you think? I invite them to sit down in a group, maybe in a circle, and maybe... <laughs> <laughs> you know, somehow in the days of the Buddha, it seemed like people just answered the riddle. <laughs> <laughs> we're so strategizing. What else did you think? Yes. his path, and I would be disrupting his path if I chose for him. So I chose for my 
myself, since the choice had to be made, I had to go because I couldn't choose for somebody else. Okay, what else? What else? Who, well, who thought somebody else? Who thought, who thought we've had so far no choosing, so far yourself? Who, anybody thought about sacrificing the benefactor? No? No. Yeah, yeah, okay. But that is, so it would be anybody wanted to make the sacrifice. Can you go through that again? <laughs> Lisa needs you to do that again. In other words, all of us would gather together in a um, in an alliance to prevent anyone from having to make any sacrifice. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. 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 That, there you go. Sandra, is that you? Yeah. Okay. Um, my impression was that a decision had to be made, or all five people would die because desperados don't argue. Mm. <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay. Very good, very good. I mean, this is a very good thing to see. We all had a different way of... Sandra Franco, by the way, is the development director here at Spirit Rock, and uh, you should meet her sometime. She knows about all these great programs that we have to keep Spirit Rock moving. Okay, who else thought the, uh, the, uh, the stranger, familiar stranger? You know, we have familiar strangers die all the time that we don't really think about when you... Uh, one of the things that came out, that one of the things that is in my pile of things here that I've been collecting all week to talk to you about, uh, which is on the one hand, well, I'll tell it to you because it's in my pile of things, but I just have been thinking about it. Someone sent it to me this week and said, can you believe this? And at first reading, it was funny. And then you realize how extremely not funny it is after a while, or to me. Was there an account of a soccer match in uh, Johannesburg? Actually, I think it was in Johannesburg, South Africa. A soccer match at which the ref made a certain call. The opposite team took issue with that call. They thought it was the wrong call. And the manager from that other team came out of whatever is the soccer equivalent of the dugout you know, to talk to the ref that made the call came out accompanied by several of the team players that took issue with the call, were walking across the field to talk to the ref, and the ref took out a gun, shot the manager, dead. Yes, no, it happened. It's, I mean, it was Reuters, it happened. And I read the whole article. Now, first of all, it's ghastly, isn't it? And I read the whole article to see if they continued the game. You know, that it was so bizarre. The, the whole thing was bizarre. I read the article to see what they were. I, th I think so, but I don't know. I don't know what the teams are. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. But I started to think very seriously. That at first I thought it was, you know, I laughed originally because the person who sent it to me said this is a little extreme. Don't you think about? It? <laughs> so I thought, well, yeah, it is extreme. But then I thought about how easily passions are aroused, and I began to worry and think about how easily passions are aroused to do something unthinkable, like kill a person. When, we think, when I hear that story, you think, oh, well, that's, you know, it's half a world away, 
and it's one person, so clearly it's not a well person. Well people don't do that. There are hundreds of thousands of soccer refs and managers in the world that they don't kill each other when they make a wrong call. So it's not correct thinking, I think, to think, well, you know, it's South Africa, or well, it's soccer, or well, it's referees, or, you know, well, it's anything. Just, well, this particular thing happened, and that's very unusual in the world of soccer games or athletics. But people kill each other purposely all the time. I, I, I went on a website. I'm getting better at this. This is actually continuing from the riddle. One answer is you can't choose. The next answer is you can't kill. That under that, you know, that first you can't choose, but then really, what about that first precept of I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings of whatever color or whatever de uh, belief? And I began to think very seriously about what it is in human beings that allows them to make the jump from this person as another view to this person as my enemy to it's all right to kill them. And there's a website on which you can find the numbers of American people, American wounded or killed in the different combats that America has been in since the Revolutionary War. And you probably, you probably know that more people were killed in the Civil War than any other American conflict. And that's with Americans killing Americans. Not, not a different religion, not a different ethnicity, not a different culture, not a different country. Americans killing Americans. Hmm? Just different views. Just different views. Half a million people, relatives, killing each other. You think, how did that get flamed up? My friend Jack sometimes, you know. Anyway, I have the view that, and I, you know, who knows? We never, we none of us know. I worry a lot about the getting flamed up about righteousness of a cause, and I'm honoring actually Tony more and more about his practice of listening to the other person's point of view. You want to talk about it for a minute, Tony? Would you like to meet Tony? This is Tony Bernhardt. Come over here. We're going to have an impromptu teaching, Tony. I didn't know he was going to be here this morning, so I did not plan on him. This is Tony Bernhardt. <laughs> Scratching his head. What do you want me to say? I want you to talk about your practice. Well, um... I, I'm not quite sure when it started, but I, I found myself leaving work at the time when the... Any of you guys familiar with Michael Savage? Have you ever listened to him? Um, it's fascinating because actually if you... I've, I've actually gone so far as to tape his, his show and then type it up and so I can actually sit with it. Um, but he's, he's nasty. Uh, and certainly doesn't share my perception of the world. Um, you know, he would probably refer to all of us here as, um, what, red diaper doper babies, you know, uh, we got to get the ragheads out of, you know, this country because this is a Christian country, and I mean, it's just nasty and um, pretty horrible. And my practice was, um, when I first discovered he was on, and I, I'm not quite sure how, but my practice was to listen to him 
And as soon as I got reactive, hit the off button. And my goal was to get to the freeway entrance before the radio <laughs> went off. <laughs> and it, it took a long time. Um, it took a long time to be able to just sit with that. <clears throat> now I find um, some of these things entertaining. I was listening to, I was stuck watching a train go by in front of, in front of me. And uh, I was listening to um, some religious family radio. And the guy was telling me, honest, he was telling me that gay marriage was going to, honest, take away my house and destroy my own marriage. He never quite explained the mechanism. And then <laughs> I, I kept listening for that, you know. But what struck me as I listened to this was that there were a lot of people, I mean, this is not, you know, a low-power radio station with one person listening. There are a lot of people who are just afraid of gay marriage, you know. I mean, just the idea. And what... I guess the outcome of my, you know, as I move along with the practice, I, I realize that when you live in those ideas, you know, with your friend, um, uh, I kept thinking, you know, she's going to feel assaulted by your offer. Mm -hmm. No wonder she's backing off. Mm -hmm. um, the only way is for, I, I, I was thinking about the, um, that scene in the in the movie Gandhi, where um, this guy comes out in the midst of all the the chaos, and he said, "I just killed a young Muslim boy." Or, right, and 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 um, uh, Gandhi says to him, "Well, go out and find another orphan child and raise him as a Muslim." And this guy was a Hindu, and so I'm thinking, well, you know raise them as a Republican. <laughs> because really what's, you know, you can't start with the abortion thing, you know, because we're, it just lights us up and you can't start with the gay marriage stuff. But the, these people want to be happy too and they care about their children and you have all kinds of things to talk with them about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can love them even below all that stuff, as soon as you get into those ideas, I mean, we believe our ideas. Mm -hmm. And we are so attached to them. And we identify with them. And we, we it's just incredible power that, um, you know, that gets tied up. And we, we get angry and we kill people for that stuff. And... Um, so I've just found, listen, Rush Limbaugh now is a piece of cake. If you can do, <laughs> if, if you can do Michael Savage. Um, but I think these guys are actually, a lot of these guys are, are entertainment people. And so they're, they're specifically trying to provoke a response. Um, so, you know, their intention is different. Yeah. <laughs> my mother was just something like that in the car and I'll cry. Mm. I, it doesn't feel like something I can't reconcile yeah. myself with the fact that they're human beings. No, in the world that they're all that cruel. The the trick is to allow yourself to hurt. Mm. 
So now I got something more to say. This is Can a I go back to my seat? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Thank you very much, Tony. <laughs> it's an impromptu exam. He didn't know that that was going to happen. I think that, that that key that Tony said about the, the key is that you have to allow yourself to hurt. I actually know that feeling of becoming so inflamed that you can't stand it. I actually can't stand it on either side. There are programs on KPFA, excuse me, Chris, that, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, inflame up on the other side that are probably right, but I can't stand the being inflamed. Not because they're even doing it in a bad way. They're not actually inflammatory, just heaping on more fuel on my fire of thinking things are all going wrong. And I can barely manage my fire of thinking things are going all wrong without having fuel heaped on it. It's like I already decided I don't need more of that. And it, it, it's actually because it's, it's so painful, I can't bear it. So here is the really important piece of Buddha Dharma. I want us to think a little bit about what I think are the two ways that um, because one of them is to feel absolutely brokenhearted about what's going on so that we can make a change in what's going on. If you keep your eyes open, I don't think you can look at the world and, and know what's going on and not be heartbroken about it. You can't look at yourself and not be heartbroken about it. Look in your own mind and see. I think that one of the, it seems crucial to me to think about that uh, the first thing that one sees is one develops an interior practice of cultivating peace of mind is how much one's own mind has habits of greed and hatred, how much one's own mind falls asleep. I certainly have myself as a best interest of mine. I want more than anything to feel peaceful because then I'll feel loving and I'll feel like myself. And I feel sick when I don't feel loving. I feel like I've caught a flu of the mind and then I have to get back to myself. And I would like more than anything to get back to myself. And I see how the habits of my own mind build walls that, that estrange me from my own heart. I get stuck all the time. I think it's necessary for me to see that before I even begin to look out in the world and see who out there is the enemy that I can get. You know, if I'm going to get mad out there, I have to be mad first at myself. Or I have to fix my own mind and heart so that I'll be able to look out there and not get mad at it. Really feel compassion for it. The whole world is completely broken. Look what it's doing. Normally I have right on my lap, but I don't today. The, the Neruda poem of, of if, we, if the whole world would just keep quiet for 12 seconds. Now I will count to 12 and we will all be still. And then two paragraphs later it says, Perhaps a huge silence would interrupt this terrible sadness of never understanding ourselves and of frightening ourselves to death. That's exactly it. We're frightening each other to death. It doesn't matter because we're either frightening ourselves and each other to death. We look at the world and say, do you know how many conflicts are going on in the world at this point? In Darfur, the debate is, is it a genocide or not a genocide? whether it amounts to a genocide or not, and it certainly looks like it does, a lot of people are getting killed, while a lot of the world is not doing anything about it or not doing enough about it. Every day, a lot of more people are getting killed, while people are thinking about getting together 
to talk about it. Um, it's breathtaking, the amount of pain in the world. I mean, we know about pain in certain localities because they involve us, but all over the world there's tremendous pain. Every single day, 30,000 children under the, year, under the age of five die of a preventable, uh, of, of malnutrition or some preventable childhood disease. That's a lot of children. It's like 100 jumbo jets falling out of the sky every single day. If 100 jumbo jets fell out of the sky every day full of children, we would notice. I mean, it'd be all over the newspapers. Everybody would be there. But 100, the equivalent of that is falling out of the world every single day while we go about our business. What will wake up people? And one of the, and here is where I think the crucial thing to think about is, is it seeing the, the, the brokenness of the world in its enormity? Because I sometimes think it's too impossible to look at that without completely giving in. And what will be, what mitigates it? What, what keeps the mind going so that it's able to say, yes, it's terribly broken, but I'll do something. I'll do one thing. I'll save one life. I'll make one little bit of difference. I'll go talk to somebody. Read you a, um, I'll read you two pieces from Alice Walker. One is a little bit out of order. I meant to read it earlier because it reminds me so much of the experience of the Buddha early on in his life. You know, mostly when people hear about the Buddha, they begin with his experience of uh, leaving home and uh, his own awakening into the possibility of really peace in the mind. But there's a really lovely story about uh, an experience that he had when he was five or six years old, the experience of uh, the rose tree experience, where the Buddha was sitting, presumably, under a rose tree, uh, rose apple tree, rose apple tree, thank you, Robin, rose apple tree, uh, with his mother in view and his father plowing a field. The story, the fable is that, uh, I mean, his father was a prince or a dignitary in this province, so he didn't have to be plowing as a livelihood, but some ceremonial tilling of the soil. So everything is perfect. The soil is being tilled, the, the, the fertility of the earth is part of that whole scene. The, the presence of loving parents. Here's the Buddha shaded by the rose apple tree. And he falls into a reverie where his mind is at peace. Somehow that reverie doesn't get up and that's the end of it. Just he had that reverie. And then it goes on to his whole life. But when the reverie story is called up, it's usually as the planting of the seed in the later to become Buddha's mind that peace is possible. That when, as an adult, he then has his four um, visions, a vision of old age and sickness and death, and of a monk with a mind at peace in a world where old age, sickness, and death are inevitable, he gets that about the monk because he has some prior experience, visceral, in that lifetime of what it means to have a mind that's peaceful, a mind that isn't inflamed or stirred up. And that a mind not inflamed by, by anything that's happening or by any internal need, in fact, 
is that the is the mind that we want to have. You think about it in the context of Buddha Dharma. The third of the th four noble truths is that peace is possible. That the mind without an imperative, that it needs to be different, is really a possibility. And that's really what the, what the Buddha was was teaching about. The Buddha was not actually very vocal about social structures. We have to do that now because we have more of an understanding of how the structures contribute to the views and the habits of the mind. So we need to do that. The Buddha in his context didn't do that, but very clear about the mind without an imperative that it has to be different. The mind that looks around and says, it's like this because of causes and conditions, and I am happiest if I relate out of kindness. That's enough. That the, I will not be swayed from my position of benevolence. I wish well. You know, on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, presumably according to that fable, when he is assailed by all of the forces of greed and hatred and delusion in the personage of Mara, the evil one, he is protected. I, I always imagine this is kind of, I'm sure this is... Um, way too mundane and not acceptable a metaphor, but uh, so don't say Sylvia said this. But <laughs> if you remember a long time ago, there was an, a Colgate ad that had an invisible shield that protected your your teeth. Cardinal. I imagine... Cardinal. Huh? Gardol. Gardol it was? Anyway, something had an... Oh, that was the ingredient in Colgate or something invisible shield so that whatever went onto your teeth didn't get onto your teeth. Here's the Buddha and here are the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. I mean, all of those forces are certainly active in the mind of anybody that takes out a gun and kills anybody or takes out anything and hurts anybody. Is Those forces have taken over so that in the moment I'll be happier doing this than radiating peace and goodwill, which is actually the only place where the mind is and the heart are peaceful. There's nothing like that. And I think that that particular scene where the Buddha radiating out nothing but goodwill is, in, is impervious to greed, hatred, and delusion. He's protected. I think it, uh, it harkens back to the kind of uh, uh, experience he had when he was five that somehow you have to have an experience where the mind is at ease and you know somehow that you are somehow not apart from this world, not separate from anything, safe exactly as you are, connected to everything. And in this particular piece that I'm about to read to you from Alice Walker, not only connected to everything, but prevented from ever doing anything harmful to anything. One day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me that feeling, that feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all. And I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and I cried and I ran all over the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happened, you can't miss it. I like that a lot. How many times do you have to have that experience? Or... And 
to go along with that, sometimes I'm talking about the suffering in the mind and the suffering in the world. It seems like life itself, since we're born with instincts of wanting to get over all those instinctive pulls that are in us and all the conditioning of all the incarnations, you think, well, maybe life inherently is too difficult, too wrought with suffering. I actually read the, the, the promises of the Buddha that you could see so clearly that you would not be reborn into a life of suffering, not so much as having to do with not a, not a future incarnation as a human being. It might be true, I don't know. Uh, I think that the Buddha was living and teaching in a different kind of uh, cultural context. I think I am reborn into a world of suffering anytime I'm caught in a greed or a hatred or a confusion. I think I am reborn into worlds of suffering all the time. Um, and, so, and somehow uh, I escape from those worlds of suffering all the time. I think free, and then I'm caught again. I think I go in and out of being reborn many times a day. This is Alice Walker. Life is better than death, I believe, if only because it's less boring and because there are fresh peaches in it. <laughs> but actually, that moves me a lot, this being peach season, maybe. But you know what I thought about? You know what I thought about? That because she chose peaches and not watermelons or strawberries or cranberries or... No, cranberries are not around now. But all the melons that are out and everything that's just right now, she did choose peaches. And I thought to myself, there's a poem about peaches that says it could have been otherwise. And I think that this is a really important thing to... to this is the poem to know about in terms of um, what is it that, uh, that in spite of the fact that it is wrought with difficulty, this life, it's hard to keep your mind and your heart in a good shape. It's really hard just to keep it in a good shape, never mind in a benevolent shape, not in a belligerent shape, in a just relaxed shape, and then from there in a benevolent shape. It's a poem by Jane Kenyon called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the wall and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. Jane Kenyon uh, wrote that in 1996, and she died several years ago of cancer. But that particular understanding, whatever is happening now, 
might have been otherwise. Especially if what's happening is pleasant. If I'm eating breakfast, which means I can still eat breakfast and have a peach and have it with someone I love. Or think about someone that I love. It could be otherwise. I think so much about that awareness of the karma of things, the temporality of things, the preciousness of a life. So that somehow, when I said peaches, you know, when, when Alice Walker said peaches, life is, not, life is preferable because it's not so boring and because there are peaches. Didn't your heart pick up on the peaches? Yeah. <laughs> I had this conversation with a friend of mine recently. Uh, it's my friend, uh, uh, the Rabbi Zalman Shakta Shalomi, who some of you will know, is uh, 80 years old now and uh, quite a prominent spokesman in progressive Judaism. And we had a conversation about uh, uh, next lives and uh, about, oh, I, th- I think the conversation started about last uh, sentences in life and what were you going to say about in your last sentence if you could be uh, uh, that seems to be coming up in my conversation a lot these days if you could plan your last sentence like a Zen monk or a Zen teacher and you're going to save your most pithy statement for the end <laughs> so with your exhaling breath you would say something like form is emptiness and emptiness is form or some <laughs> Zen thing and um, what would you say and uh, so we talked about the various things that you might say. And uh, we talked about the, the traditional teaching that it, it would be wonderful if you could leave your life not resenting that you were leaving and not looking forward to going. We just in that sort of a balanced place. It, uh, presumably, it ensures you a better rebirth if it's true about rebirths. So, talking about uh, one particular woman who is known to have exited. Uh, saying, thank you very much, I have no complaints, as her <laughs> exiting statement. I actually think that would be a great thing if you could, I mean, that's it. Thank you very much, I have no complaints. That would be great if your heart was really in that place. So I said, you know, that's great. I said, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. I, I don't want to fight against it whenever it is. I hope I do it in the best possible way, full of awareness that it couldn't have been different or whatever. I said, but you know, I think that just the nature of my personality, I'm going to be interested in wanting to know who won the election and who won the World Series or who got the Academy Award or whether someone is going to figure out how to clean up the ozone layer or fix it up or who is going to develop the final vaccine for AIDS or uh, any other one of the diseases that is still destroying such large segments of the planet? Who's going to figure out how to clean up the water in the world? It's interesting to think about that. So I said, probably I'm going to think, oh, I wish I could read tomorrow's newspaper. Or just, uh. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, if you think like that, you're probably up for another incarnation. You're looking for trouble. I said, maybe, you know. I said, I, I, I have a little bit more invested here on this side than that side. He said, that's, you're looking for trouble, you'll be back. 
I don't know, maybe in my heart of hearts I don't mind about that um, because it's not boring and there are peaches yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> so I wish you in these next few weeks to come that uh, you do all of this participation in the world of rhetoric with a contented heart um, and um, do everything you can to make all of your views known and see if you can do it without making anybody the enemy. Um, the thing that I say to myself when I'm about to vilify in my mind any particular person that I don't even know but is saying something that I don't believe is um, he's going to go home and have dinner as well and probably likes his grandchildren and you know, I think about something that makes him just like me not other other is the big cause of the trouble the answer to the riddle by the way is you can't choose and I, I, I that's the, that's the only written answer though, that I've ever heard but I would also say you can't choose and you can't kill you can't kill so let's sit for a minute We cannot live for ourselves alone. Our lives are connected by a thousand invisible threads. And along these sympathetic fibers, our actions run as causes and return to us as results. That's Herman Melville, by the way. Could have been the Buddha, but it's Herman Melville. So I think... Uh, uh, I often think about Buddhist wisdom that it's wisdom, wisdom. May the merit that accrues from our being together and studying and thinking and teaching each other and listening to each other in uh, sympathy and in kindness, may the merit that accrues be given freely into the world for the benefit of all beings. May it spread and grow, contribute to the well-being of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.